I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, and it is a treat. Not a sugary treat, but a real treat to be here today. We've got with us JJ Virgin. JJ, how are you? I'm good. It's definitely not a sugary treat, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that shortly. So for those tuning into version for the first time, she's a four-time New York Times bestselling author. She's a celebrity nutritionist and a fitness expert. And she's been a celebrity personal trainer in LA since back in the 80s. And since then, she's become one of the most recognizable names in the space. She's featured on countless programs Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz. She's also had a slew of radio and news shows she's hosted, and JJ's got her own lifestyle podcast. She dives deep into a wide array of topics around health and fitness herself. And uh, one of the things that I found really intriguing was uh, if you go online and check this out, there's this thing called Freaky freaky Eaters, is it? Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sorry to go straight there, but like one of the things I was watching, I was watching you know, uh, like do Freaky Eaters and I was like, wait, watching JJ do Freaky Eaters is like watching Joe Rogan set up like, I don't know, like a safety course after. <laughs> some of the things that people consume, wow, I couldn't, I, I couldn't even believe it. I know. And like you don't make it up, by the way. Like <laughs> that, that was real. So, you know, even though reality shows are kind of fake reality, um, when we were doing that show, we had so many applications for people. And I still, years later, like every time I go live on Instagram, I get pummeled with people and then they DM me about their weird eating stuff. And I'm like, but this will not go away. Like, go away, you know? <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about, okay, so there's been a deep fascination with food and I've, I've, I've you know, 
um, dived into the, the, the little rabbit warrens of, of what's going on in, in JJ's background. There's been some really incredible milestones in your life and some, some of them really challenging in terms of helping you refine your message, get deeper on your passion for health and fitness. But where did this, where did this all really start like for you? Like, was this something that you were always aware of that, you know, just helping people with their health was something that mattered so much to you or, you know, where did this come from? 12 year old me. <laughs> I actually was always kind of obsessed with this. I um, started out as a, wanted to be a, a theater major. Wanted to, I wanted to be on Broadway and at the age of 12. And I actually went to American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. I had a full ride scholarship to UCLA in their theater department. But at age 12, I was like dancing and singing. And I got very, very into nutrition because, you know, I mean, I, you have to if you're a dancer, right? And that's where it all started. When I got to UCLA, I realized that I didn't want to be a waitress. And that was their whole thing at the theater department at UCLA was, you're going to be a waitress. And I'm like, why am I in school to be a waitress? This does not sound like a career path that I should be doing. And so I started, I like didn't know what I wanted to do then, which is kind of funny how every, all these things converge because... I then became an English major, which, you know, even though I don't really like to write, I've written a few books. Mm. Um, but during that time, I started teaching aerobics because that's kind of where it went. You know, it was, it was teaching dance, then teaching calisthenics, then teaching aerobics. And then someone said, hey, come over to my house. And, you know, I don't want to come to a studio, but would you do aerobics class at the house? Next thing you know, I'm a personal trainer. And there wasn't even a name for it back then. <laughs> like, you know, and then it was me, Body by Jake and Mark Sisson. And we were personal, like we became personal trainers. And it was a thing. And there were, we were the three, which was kind of cool. Like I was in college. This was in the 80s. And, you know, making all of this money back then while all my friends were getting these horrible jobs in offices, right? <laughs> you know, and I was just running around having a great time. But I then thought, you know, what became very clear very quickly was that you could not out-exercise a bad diet. And I had to really get this nutrition piece dialed. Mm. And so I was in doctoral school then, and I started studying the nutrition side of it. And I kind of ran out of exercise classes to take in, in grad school and doctoral school. So then I started studying nutrition. You can never run out of nutrition and, and health classes. They're like endless, especially with all the stuff going on. So, you know, I just, I've always been obsessed with this stuff. I think it's fascinating. Mm. I love what you're sharing there, and I'm uh, not surprised that we're converging in on this uh, chat at this particular moment in time because, yeah, what you just mentioned was you can't exercise out a bad diet. Um, mm -hmm. That's like, you know, that's pretty much the moniker for where I'm at at the moment. Um, I guess I've been in and out of gyms for about 10, maybe even 11 years now, um, and I'm just like it's been the last 12 to 18 months where it's really started to settle in for me that actually – all that time in the gym where you think you're, you know, burning, like, let's just talk, like, quickly, there's, like, real grounded stuff. Like, you can spend 30 minutes on a treadmill, burn, like, you know, 300, 400 calories, but that's, like, 
not even half a cookie. Do you know what I mean? Like, when Ooh, can we dig into that? Because this is where it all started for me, Amrit. This is like, this was like the start. So here I am in grad school. Yeah. And they say, now I'm a personal trainer. If I make my clients fatter, I'm not getting paid, right? So they want to lose weight and they want results. And we are taught in school that if someone wants to lose weight, they need to eat less, exercise more, and create a 500 calorie deficit a day, and then they'll lose a pound a week, which sounds awesome and doesn't work. And that's what I discovered is that it might work for someone who's metabolically healthy in their 20s. It doesn't work for someone who's not metabolically healthy. Maybe they've got diabetes, you know, um, hypertension, any of that, or they're starting to get their hormones out of balance in their 40s and 50s. And so I'm looking at this, I'm like, this does not work. And I thought, what if everything we were being taught was wrong? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I've always been the question authority person. So I'm like, what if this is all wrong? And what if our body isn't a bank account? What would be the things that would get in the way of you losing weight and cause you to gain weight? You know, this whole idea of going to the gym to burn off calories, and then you go on a treadmill and it says you burned 300 calories. Well, you didn't really because you burn, you didn't burn 300 additional calories because you already would have burned some calories anyway. And what was interesting back then is I remember seeing a study that said, that showed that women who did, who ran every single day, if they stopped running, they gained weight. Why? Because they made their body reliant on burning that many calories a day and they were burning up lean tissue. And I thought, you know, what if it's not actually about burning calories? What if it's about changing the way your body handles calories by having more muscle, by being able to burn more fat, by being more insulin sensitive? So I basically stopped because we were all taught in school, do loads and loads and loads of aerobics if you want to lose weight. And I thought, what if you do weight training instead, put on more muscle, that muscle required more energy to be on your body, and it improved your insulin sensitivity, so you'd be able to burn fat easier. And that became the formula, you know, for how to do this. The other thing in there is the big boo-boo that we do is we say, okay, I'm just going to eat less. And I had one client back then who if she ate more than 800 calories a day, she'd gain weight. She'd so damaged her metabolism to downshift and be able to rely on very low calories. And one, just like we mix, mix up our exercise, we've got to mix up our eating. Our body shouldn't be getting the same calories every day. You know, like we were built to feast and famine. We were not built to eat this like, you know, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, and then you better have a snack before dinner because God forbid you get hungry in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, right? 
<laughs> I love that. So talk to me a little bit because one of the like one of the biggest proponents, uh, you're one of the biggest proponents out there for me. That was, um, hey, you'd like because I know I hear people say this all the time. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grazer, if you will. You're a grazer? No, no, no I'm not. <laughs> but I oh, I was gonna say naughty. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I get that a lot. It's like people say, hey, like I, I, I like to graze, and then people have adopted certain identities around different types of patterns. Well, who wouldn't like to graze? Wouldn't you like to just eat all day long? <laughs> like you wouldn't. You know, well, I, yeah. but that does, just because you like to do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Right. I'd love to lie on the couch, have, have like wine and popcorn all day. That'd be awesome. You know, that'd be great. I'd be, you know, <laughs> diabetic. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> so tell us about like, because it seems like when we talk about hormones and muscle, at the key of it, you're talking about our insulin sensitivity. So tell us a little bit about, um, I know when I say that out loud, some people go, oh, what are we talking about? Like that doesn't sound very sexy. But tell us about insulin sensitivity and why it's so important. To it's so it's everything. Um, yeah, if you want to um, live younger, longer, you've got to have good insulin sensitivity. And this is why grazing is so rotten for you. So when you eat, your body, you know, you eat your body's blood sugar goes up. Blood sugar goes up and then your pancreas secretes insulin to bring blood sugar back down. Because if blood sugar is up, it's very toxic to your body. And in fact, we know that even slightly elevated blood sugar for an extended period of time, five times the increases your risk of dementia. So, so blood sugar comes up when you eat and then insulin comes in to take that blood sugar and put it into the cells so your body can use it. So that's awesome unless you have breakfast and then, and you have, let's say you have breakfast, and instead of eating a good blood sugar balanced breakfast, you have the typical breakfast, which is, say, a muffin and a skinny latte, which is reality, a muffin's a cupcake without frosting, let's face it, right? And a skinny latte. Well, you have that, you're going to get a big blood sugar hit, and your insulin comes up and goes, got to get that down. And so it gets it down, and then you think, okay, I ate, I better have a snack. It's been two hours, but I'm not going to all just have a little biscotti or something like that. So you have a little like fat-free biscotti or something like that that kicks your blood sugar back up. Well, blood sugar moves pretty quickly. Insulin does not. So that insulin was still up. Blood sugar comes up again. Insulin's going to push it back down, but insulin never had a chance to come back down. And in fact, it probably even rose a little bit. And as long as insulin's up there, think of it as locking the doors to your fat cells. So you can't burn off stored fat. So now you ate, but a couple hours later, you're hungry, but you're like, why am I hungry? I just ate. Well, you ate because you're hungry because your blood sugar came down, your insulin stayed up. You can't access stored fat for fuel. So your body goes, feed me something. And it creates this really bad situation where insulin now, your, your body starts getting tired of the insulin message. This is where you become insulin resistant versus insulin sensitive. And so it has to keep pumping out more and more insulin to get that blood sugar down until at some point it finally says, hell with you, I'm done. And that's where you become diabetic. But you don't become diabetic overnight, you become diabetic over time. And all along the way, you can see signs it's happening. You can see this higher fasting insulin, it should be down between three and five. You can see higher 
fasting blood sugar, that should be 75 to 80. And if those things are not where they are should be and playing together, you start to see weight gain around the waist. You can tell if you're like relying on burning sugar all throughout the day and not burning fat because you're hungry every couple hours. You um, have this waist, this belly fat you cannot lose right? You know, you're like, gosh, I feel like I'm cutting, cutting down on food, but I'm hungry all the time and I can't lose weight. That's because of the insulin situation. Mm. I love that. And so what I'm downloading in that is um, you've basically got blood sugar as the, what, what accesses your cravings as opposed to your insulin, which is what helps you access and uh, work with your fat and the dynamic relationship between. So what's interesting, you can fix this really fast and this is what's good. So if you are someone who's been eating every two to three hours, because somewhere along the line, you heard you were supposed to graze, mm-hmm. um, you know, don't let yourself get hungry. And I love the phrase that I heard from Dr. Joel Kahn, hunger equals younger. What is wrong with being a little hungry? We should feel a little hunger. And if you haven't felt hungry for a long time, I'm going to challenge you right now to go and get a little hungry. And when you get a little hungry, drink some water and wait. And then when you're really hungry, eat something. It's fine to get a little hungry. So the way you get this turned around quickly is you start, first of all, by making sure at each meal that you eat, you have clean protein, something like grass-fed beef, wild fish, some loads of non-starchy vegetables, and maybe a little slow, low carbs. So things like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, maybe a little bit of wild rice or lentils or squash, and then some healthy fats like olive oil or avocado. And when you do that this way, you've got the protein and the fiber slowing down stomach emptying, keeping ghrelin suppressed so you're not as hungry and protein's more satiating. Um, And then, or actually the protein, I'm sorry, the fat and the fiber do that. And then the protein triggers the release of some neuropeptides that tell your brain that you're full. So that all works together to have a slow release of blood sugar, not a big spike. So you don't get that big rise in insulin. So you can go four to six hours between when you need to eat again. So the first thing you start to do is, is get the snacks out. Then you stop eating three to four hours before bed to get a good 12 hour plus overnight fast. Then you start taking your breakfast to a little bit later. So you compress your feeding window. So maybe you're only eating eight hours during the day and maybe you're having two meals in a little like snack right? And a lot of fluid. And that's how you can get your blood sugar balance pretty darn quickly and your insulin lower. And then the other trick for getting your insulin low is to lift weights because the first place that you can start restoring insulin sensitivity is in your muscles. Your muscles will suck up. Like if you went and did some, like maybe you ate a cookie or something, you go and do some push-ups and stuff, you're going to suck up that uh, you know, cookie into your muscles and store it as glycogen, and you won't have the big blood sugar insulin hit, right? I'm not saying to do that, mind you. I'm just saying <laughs> it's, a, it's a little hack if you did. But um, you know, doing weight training is a great way to start getting insulin sensitive again. So is getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> Mm, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's for some part of it, it's, um, like I said, the last 12, 18 months has been really what I'm hearing you share right now is really affirming where I'm at because so basically I, yeah, very much so I've come to realize what you're sharing is um, my first meal in the day is generally a, a breakfast smoothie 
um, which I know you're a massive proponent for, and it, and it has protein. And what do you put in your breakfast smoothie? That's my first meal too. Yeah, cool. So I've got a I've got a banana that goes in there, a lot of berries, um, and then some greens, all different types of greens that go in there, just because you can sneak them in and they don't really, yeah, uh, <laughs> you can't really taste them. And uh, some scoops of really clean protein, um, some flax seeds or some good fats and uh, the oils and that sort of stuff, um, and then some medicinal mushrooms like shaga, reishi, some top, and some, mm-hmm. some things that help with information and just some cold water and, and we're set to go. Uh, so here's what I would throw in there. You've got flax seed, which is great because you're getting the healthy fats from it. If you switched over to unsweetened coconut milk, even better because you've got more fats and then make sure like if you're using a banana, go for, get bananas when they're green, freeze them. Because a green banana has got more resistant starch, which actually can help you burn fat and feeds the gut microbiome. Take half a green banana, and I also take avocado and I freeze that in little chunks. So take a little bit of a green banana, banana, like half, take some of the avocado, and then take some berries. So you're not overloading on fruit, but you're also not getting like bananas can be an amazing food or a very high sugar food, depending on where they are in their ripeness spectrum, right? Mm. They're a totally different food when they're greener than when they're riper. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that little hack. And what I've learned is, yeah, exactly what you shared. Like I can push my breakfast out to about 11 now. Um, so mm-hmm. the fasting window. And then I also get the opportunity once I eat at 11, I'm not hungry. So about like legitimately what some people call just before dinner, like 4.35, right? Because I've just had my smoothie and all the way through, like because I've had that protein, it's satiating for so much longer. The protein, fat and fiber, you've got all of it in there. So it's perfect. And that means you're also, you know, your body can use stored fat for fuel. So that's the other big win there, right? Yeah, so you've been talking to us a little bit about this in terms of going from being a sugar burner to a fat burner, but I know this is a massive message of yours. Is there something you want to dive deeper into around that for for the listeners? Yeah, this is um, when I, so I wrote The Virgin Diet, and The Virgin Diet really came from my journey of being obsessed with weight loss resistance. What gets in the way of you burning, losing weight, or could cause you to gain weight? You know, because again, when I was growing up in this field, everything was about calories in, calories out. And I just thought that was ridiculous. And what I discovered were there were all these different things that could create weight loss resistance. Could be could be your genetics, which, you know, what I say with genetics is it just could mean it's going to be harder for you, but it doesn't make it impossible. Um, but could be genetics, could be because you're going into menopause or andropause, it could be a thyroid problem, it could be stress, it could be sleep. But one of the things that can be, and toxicity, of course, is what's going on with your gut. And so one of the ways that I help people lose weight is to figure out their hidden food intolerances from leaky gut. I um, did that and then after that, the biggest question I got asked after that was, well, what about sugar? Because sugar was one of the things I pulled out in that diet, but people who were sugar addicts were struggling. They were like, I can't get, I can't get rid of the sugar. And so I was determined to take the toughest cases. I took 900 people through that class when I first was putting it together, and they were all the ones that could not. They said, I, am a sh- I cannot stop eating sugar. They were what I called sugar burners, meaning they couldn't go more than two to three hours without eating. They could not lose weight off their waist. If they did lose weight, it was like they were a potato on stilts. They would lose you know, off, their, off their thighs, but they wouldn't lose off their belly. 
So they just could not lose that no matter what, which means, and they were very, their blood sugar was very unstable. So that's really the sign of a sugar burner. They crave carbs. If they go too long without eating, they crash. They can't lose weight around their waist. And you can honestly turn that around fairly quickly, but you can't turn it around overnight. Where I see people having problems is they go, all right, you know what? I got to lose my waist. Um, I can't stand this belly fat. So I'm just going to go and I'm going to go keto and I'm going to fast. Well, if your that body has you said, <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry to you yeah, right. It doesn't, it, you can do that when you've prepared your body, like mm-hmm. intermittent fasting, fasting, ketogenic diets, they have, can be really therapeutic, but you have to get ready for them. You don't just go, all right, I've been eating a total garbage crap diet. So tomorrow after I eat a pizza and ice cream tonight, I'm going to start that because you, you'll fail. But if instead you go, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is eat much higher quality and, and unprocess my diet. Then I'm going to stop eating three to four hours before bed. I'm going to make sure I'm getting protein, fat, and fiber at each meal. I'm going to start eating a little later in the morning. I'm going to get rid of the snacks. I'm going to add more water. I'm going to start lowering my sugar impact. I'm going to get rid of food and harmful foods. Then I can go in there and go, all right, now I'm intermittent fasting. Great. Now I can roll in some keto. But you don't go. That would be like going, you know what? I think I want to be an Olympic athlete. I realize that I have never run a race. I don't even jog. But I think I'm going to be a sprinter. I'll I'll just enter. You know, it's like you don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I love that, meeting people where they're at. And so there's the real conversation around sugar around there, but one of the things you really touched on, which is – yeah, is I think just it'd be rude not to go there is this conversation around leaky gut. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about like gut permeability. And this is so fundamental It's so interesting because literally when I first started talking about this, it wasn't a thing, right? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't a thing and people were like, that's not real. So it's I was like, gluten and like all that is like a thing. Yeah, it's now a it's a thing. Right? It's like you go to a restaurant, they don't but, have vegetarian options, they got gluten free options. <laughs> and no, when I first started talking about gluten free, it was if you were celiac and you had to go to the weird part of the grocery store and find these couple things. And I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like, and people were like, that's not a thing. And I'm like, it's a thing. So find it away for us and we're grateful. <laughs> you know, and got called a quack and everything else. But what, you know, the thing that I've always done is I love pathways. Like I'm very left brain. So I would look at it before there were studies. I went, but if it works this way, this would make sense. So if our body's reacting to something and we know that inflammation can cause weight gain and weight gain can cause inflammation. So it becomes like a circle, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, what if your body's reacting to foods, it's creating inflammation that causes weight gain that creates inflammation, right? So this could cause weight gain. So if that's the case, if we pull those foods out, it will cause weight loss, which is what I found it did. So here's how this all came out. I was trying to figure out what could get in the way of you losing weight, cause you to gain weight. And I was also working with a company teaching doctors how to use different types of functional labs in their practice to help their patients eat better. We were using a test called a food sensitivity test. It was looking at an IgG4 marker that shows a delayed reaction to a food. Now, 
Back then, we were we had elimination diets and they were super complicated and had all these random weird things like strawberries and citrus and shellfish and peanuts, like all this stuff and very hard to do. And so I never used them because they were too hard to get people to comply to. But I had this food sensitivity test and people would walk into to these doctor's offices that I was helping out in. And they would complain about gas and bloating, joint pain, headaches, they couldn't lose weight, rashes, uh, autoimmune disease, headaches, brain fog. And so the first thing that I would do is run this lab on them. And then I'd send them out for two, for two to three weeks till the labs came back and we'd go over them. And what I started to notice was it was always the same foods, that the majority of people had dairy and eggs as, as foods they were intolerant to. Then there was another tier that would have corn, soy, and peanuts. And it was another test we did to look at gluten, but 40% or more had gluten intolerance. And what was interesting is when you look at what gluten does, gluten can make your gut more permeable because your gut's a permeable, your small intestine's a semi-permeable membrane. It should, you know, it should not let these things pass out, these particles of undigested food pass out. But it was getting more permeable because of stress, because of different medications, and because of gluten, and also because of fructose. Fructose makes your gut more permeable. And we also know that sugar and artificial sweeteners can disrupt your gut microbiome, your bacterial flora, mess things up too. So so we kind of know this stuff. So now I'm putting this together. And and I'm sitting here going, you know, they're taking the test and two to three weeks till the test comes back. Why don't I just pull the foods that we know are the most likely culprits? We'll just pull them out and give them some other choices similar to them, right? So if I'm pulling out a wheat tortilla, I'll give them a rice tortilla. And so that's the first thing that I did was I take the test, I take all those foods out that might be a problem, and they'd come back. And what would happen is they come back in two to three weeks and they go, I feel so much better. And they have lost weight. And it's funny because I'd look at the test results and I kind of started to realize that some of them, even if the test results said, oh, you, you're, you're fine with this food, they'd go back and test it and they didn't feel well. And so I kind of thought, why do I really need this test on the front end? What if we just pulled these seven foods out, took them through three weeks, went back, had them try one by one to see how they feel when they do it, because that's the ultimate test. Do you gain weight? Do you get joint pain? Do you have headaches? And then we can design a perfect diet for you at this, at this point in time, because you can develop food sensitivity. Like right now with all the crazy COVID stuff, I would guess people are getting food intolerant because they're stressed, their gut gets leaky. So that is really where that whole thing came from. And I remember back then, if you saw someone reacting on a food sensitivity test, they didn't even call it. They were like, oh, that's um, intestinal hyperpermeability. I'm like, is that when like, you're, maybe your gut's leaky? You know, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to go tell patients they have intestinal hyperpermeability. They won't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the way I was like going, your, your gut should be semi-permeable. It's gotten more holy. Then you eat things and you're already stressed. You don't have enough stomach acid. You're not breaking them down well. And you're eating the same stuff over and over and over again. It bops out gets through the lining, goes into circulation, your body goes, what the hell is this? This shouldn't be here, and launches an immune attack. And if it was just random every once in a while, the macrophages would grab a hold and get that out. But because we're eating the same things all the time and different macrophages attached to different immune complexes to get them out, you build up and you build up and get them in your joints, in your skin, in your GI, everywhere, and they create an inflammatory response and all these different symptoms. 
And what's interesting is you pull those out in three to four days, all these symptoms, like it's, it's amazing. So people come in because they want to lose weight, but they stay because they're like, I never knew I could feel like this. You know, I thought it was normal to, to be gassy and bloated. I thought it was normal to have headaches, you know? And it's like, no, that's not normal. <laughs> I love that. And thank you so much for sharing that because one of the things that um, is front and center for me, um, and I, I, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a story that I tell myself, but I've, I've come across your work and the way you describe it really, really locks it in. I have this theory that whenever I eat something, let's just say if I, if I had chocolate today right i have consumed little chocolate cells and little and they've got their own little consciousness right this is how I, this is the story that i go on and when they're in my system they're going to crave more of their friends they're going to be like you know when you have a party it's like hey more of us would be even better right so the next day or the next couple of days i'm going to be craving more and more chocolate um let's say if it's you know if i've had dairy then it's like in the next couple of days it's like there's more and more dairy that's like hey i'd love to consume a little bit more milk you know um, it, it sort of works like that yeah well if you're yeah. intolerant to a food, what happens is the food has a protein. It's the protein element that's doing this. And the protein passes through that intestinal barrier. And the body has an antibody to fight it. And the antibody and the, the antigen get together. And so what happens when you've been eating a food a little bit every single day, like dairy is a great example. Your body says, all right, I got these antibodies ready for you, fella. You go ahead. Then you don't eat it. But these antibodies are like, feed me, feed me, feed me. And you do. You start to crave the very foods that are hurting you. It's kind of a hallmark sign of a food you're intolerant to. It's as if you are have like some zombie apocalypse going on in your body. And it's like, you must have this, you know? It's like, so it is... It is one of the things I tell people when I'm setting them up for this, I go, listen, the first three to four days, pay attention to what you would like go postal over because that is most likely what you are the most intolerant to. And it's awesome that you are craving it and it will go away. It'll take a couple of days because you got to get the antibodies down. But the first couple of days, you're like, this is brutal. I can't do it. You just have to get through that piece. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, yeah, putting the science behind that energy is, is really solid. Hey, JJ, what are the seven foods that you've come to find that are consistently uh, culprits in people's diet? And I know that may not be the, the blanket for everybody. Yeah. You just from, from what you've done, you've just found that these seven foods, you know, they generally are a good place to start. Yeah. And so, and again, these are what I pull out for, for three weeks and then I go back one by one and challenge them. But I'll give you kind of the heads up of what things I just don't think we should have anyway. So gluten, and it is ridiculous where gluten is. I mean, it's just, it's just stupid. Now, it's very different, and I don't know what it's like in Australia. Like when I go to Europe, it's an entirely different situation. Um, but the U.S. gluten is horrendous. It's been hybridized, genetically in, engineered to dwarf, to be super gluten. And it makes you more insulin resistant. It makes your gut more leaky. So it's very, you know, very bad for your blood sugar, very bad for weight gain, and very bad for your gut. And they put it into the most ridiculous things. Like they'll brush wheat flour on a, on a steak and cook it at a restaurant. I mean, just dumb. You know, they put it on French fries. Yeah. So, you know, it's just like, but it's because it's super addictive. It has, we have these things called glutomorphines, just like we have casomorphine. So it has an opiate-like effect on your brain. Like the single, like 
when you really look at a massive drug, a massive drug is cereal and milk because you get gluten, dairy, and sugar. And these all have this massive opiate-like effect on your brain. It's like the trifecta. And you would never think, I just gave my kids drugs but you did. So gluten's the first one. And we know gluten triggers the release of something called zonulin that makes your gut leakier. The next one, and gluten, although we don't look at it through the IgG food sensitivity test, that would be something that we'd look at wheat that way. Gluten, you can look at it either through, um, it's generally much more of a genetic response. And you can also develop a gluten sensitivity, but gluten intolerance and celiac are genetic. Then there's dairy. And dairy and eggs are the two top I always saw in the tests. And here's the thing. Um, what we've done, we are what we eat ate. And that is really important. It would be very different if we are doing like, you know, um, grazing sheep and eating their cheese, right? But that's not what we're getting. We, you know, so we're getting these factory cows with this processed milk, horrible. So you got to be careful, not just if you do find that you're not reacting to something, it doesn't mean, hey, go crazy. It means though, go find a grass-fed, pastured uh, animal and make sure you're getting it fermented. So that's dairy. And there's, there's cow's milk dairy, which is very different than sheep and goat. So even if you can't tolerate cow, quite often you might be able to rotate in some sheep and goat. They're different. You just have to make sure you're actually getting sheep and goat because I know in the US it'll, it'll be like, here's sheep and I'll say, you'll look on the ingredients and they have cow's milk in it. And you're like, what the hell is that? So I have people test for cow and then separately test for sheep and goat to see if they could do the sheep or goat. Right. Next one is eggs. And I found that a lot of people can eat pastured eggs, but they cannot eat factory eggs where they're feeding the chicken corn and soy, just like the cows, right? And that's what they're reacting to. Um, so pastured eggs are different than the factory eggs. But again, these tend to be one of the more allergenic food sources. Next here is soy. And soy in the U.S., and I'm assuming it must be the same there. I don't know how you guys are with GMOs. Um, do you have much GMO food there? Yeah, it's coming more and more across the board now. Yeah, sorry about that. You've got <laughs> us to thank for that. Um, you know, GMO food is like frankenfood. So yeah. soy and corn tend to be very GMO crops. Um, peanuts tend to be one of the more moldy crops. That's what makes me concerned about peanuts. Corn can too. Um, but you also look at corn and like, Corn's just not a great food. It's got very inflammatory oils. It's very high sugar impact. Like what's great there? Soy, interestingly enough, like if you look at the Asian cultures, soy was used first for soil, for, for remineralizing the soil. And then when they discovered they could eat it, they said, all right, if we're going to eat this, we have to heavily, heavily ferment it to get rid of the lectins and phytates. And then you see us eating like edamame. It's like, don't do that. That is not what we should be doing. So... I remember looking at a study of Japanese men in Hawaii and they found that men that were eating so tofu three times a week had brain shrinkage, <laughs> had small, higher risks of dementia. So soy is one we have to look at. It is estrogenic. We definitely don't want it with our kids. There's better ways to get phytoestrogens for women than soy. Um, and then um, 
sugar and artificial sweeteners. And here's what happened with those. So when I first started doing this program, I pulled out gluten, dairy, eggs, corn, soy, and peanuts. Mm. And what I discovered was that if I didn't tell people to pull out sugar, that's exactly where they went. Like they stopped ah, eating all those things. That, that stop gap, that's what I feel it is. I was like, what are you doing? You know, like, and here's the problem with sugar <laughs> is sugar really messes up your gut microbiome. And that is that bacterial balance in your gut that's going to help with your immune system, nutrient absorption, and gut integrity. Like, and fructose specifically really makes your gut more leaky. Um, we know artificial sweeteners can change the bacteria to be more glucose intolerant, doesn't handle sugar as well. So you got to take the sugars into account too. And it's not meaning, meaning don't eat sugar. It's knowing what to choose to what to lose. Case in point, green banana versus highly ripe banana, you know, some berries versus raisins, right? So I, I always look at dried fruit to me as candy, fruit juice as a soda, you know, um, any of these like uh, jams and jellies and syrups are just, you know, they're syrup. That's what they are. Like our, apple juice concentrate has more fructose than high fructose syrup. So that's how that all came to be. And the way I made it work so that people could do it and not blow it, because if you can't do the program, it doesn't matter, is I would have them just take the first week and start swapping. So if you're used to having cow's milk, switch to coconut milk. If you're used to having wheat pasta, switch to rice pasta or spaghetti squash. And it was just very simple. If you're used to having eggs for breakfast, have a smoothie for breakfast with like bone broth protein or pea protein. Very simple swaps that weren't that different from what they were doing that most of the time I found people liked better. And then they just started to track their symptoms and their weight because the average person loses up to seven pounds in the first seven days. But what's really cool is those cravings go away, their headaches go away, their bloat goes away, right? Like everything changes quickly. And how are we tracking that? Because I know you're an advocate for, for us to monitor as we're going through the changes ourselves. How do we, how do we monitor that? So... I think one of the most important tools that you can do is a food diary. And I don't really care if you use an app um, or if you use a piece of paper or a journal, you just need to write it down. Like I, there's a couple important things to do every single day. One is to weigh in every single day. And I've gotten a lot of flack for that. And I used to, when I first started Emirate, it was really crazy. I didn't let people weigh in and I would only measure them because I didn't want to create weird stuff. And then I discovered that doesn't work. So then I started weighing them in once a week, but they weren't allowed to do more than that. But you know what? That wasn't right either. Because if you look at the people who are able to maintain their weight, they weigh in every day. Because if you don't weigh in every day, things can go totally sideways. And you didn't even know it because if you're feeling like you're gaining weight, you're putting on your yoga pants, right? You're not putting on your jeans. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you look what's going on with quarantine right now. This is a time where people better be getting on the scale every day because they're all they're doing. They're in their like my son's living us with right with us right now, and he's been wearing pajama bottoms every day. <laughs> like literally, I'm like going, honey, like come on, out of the pajama bottoms. Like he's just literally pajama bottoms. He's walking the dog in the neighborhood in the pajama bottoms. Like all right, that's great. And I got him merman. Mer he's got like you know space alien and merman pajama bottoms these wandering neighborhood <laughs> like, who is this but you know i mean it's very easy they're all stretchy so if people aren't weighing in bad stuff can happen right 
I get that. Yeah, sweet. And so I, I love how there's so much that's gone into the back end of this over the time that you've put into all this, but it, it comes back down to building your own relationship with the food and taking the moment to realize that. And it gets as simple yeah. as put a pen to a piece of paper, weigh in. Yeah. How did I feel after like eating this? How, how is my progress tracking? But you'd think that like, and I'm just remarking this, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, that something as fundamental as our relationship with food. Like it's a relationship, like we're consistently engaged in it, um, but we don't really take the time to evaluate it as deeply as we could. We don't take, like we like food journaling sounds like, when I, even though they say this, I know some people went, ah, food journaling, it switched off. You know, it's just like, but it's yeah. one of the deepest relationships. Like why would you not take a moment in time to? Well, it's your, really your longest term relationship. <laughs> yeah, but I... What I looked at early on is I thought, you know, what we really need to do, I feel like so many of these diets divorce us from how we really feel eating that food or eating that way, right? Oh, you're supposed to eat every couple hours. I go, but how did that make you feel? Oh, you're supposed to be doing keto. How did that make you feel? I think one of the most important things you can do is connect the dots between what you're eating, how you feel, and what you weigh. And then you can go, did this work for me? Because, you know, the, the whole point of the virgin diet isn't, oh, now you're on the virgin diet forever. No, the point of the virgin diet was to go through a process, okay. pulling these foods out and going, and then coming back and checking in with each food and going, how do I feel when I eat this? Is this something I can incorporate into my diet daily, every other day, once a week, or should I leave it out altogether? And so you can design a program the way you eat so it's going to work for you for the long haul. Right. Same with my, my program, Sugar Impact Diet. It was really to help you break the vicious cycle of sugar craving and really figure out, you know, where sugar sneaking into your diet and then how you feel. So you know how many carbs, how much sugar can you eat without, you know, becoming a sugar burner again and with having great steady sustained energy, right? Because it's different for everybody. And that is so key and critical. We tend to think, oh, we should, everybody should do the keto diet. No, not everybody should. Some people do well. Some people won't. Some people do well. I'm not a big fan of a vegan diet, but some people can do fine on a vegan diet. You know, I can't. I feel like crap on one. It's not good for me. So you've got to find that thing that works well for you and not just, it's not going to be long term because we need to look at the diet that's right for us at the time we are in our life, what's going on, what health challenges are going on, what our goals are, what's going on with our lifestyle, right? And then base it on that. And I really love that you're sharing that, Jojo. And I'm, I'm part of me inside is just, you know, jumping up for joy that someone with your level of prominence as this message and it's consistently sharing that because I know just how, like, like it's – it's interesting that you're asking people to develop a relationship with themselves when I'm acutely aware where it's just like, just give me the diet. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. like, just, just tell me I, what to eat. I don't want to connect to me. Like, I don't want this story of like, now I'm going to figure myself out, you know, self-realization yeah. process around being my food. It's just be so much easier just to be like, go do this, do this, do this at this time, exactly this, exactly this. But exactly what you're sharing, it's like depending on where you're at in your life, what your demands are, what your stress levels are, where you're living, what sort of foods are available to you, that sort of conversation is like you've got to get, like build that relationship with yourself around your own food. I'm really grateful that you're sharing that with us. I've got a weird sort of question when we're talking. It's not really that weird, but it's a, it's a deep sort of question for me. I was hoping it was weird. So I talking about this connection to ourselves and you said, you know, like, like 
we talked about, you know, we're kind of divorced from our food uh, uh, in terms of the, the, the stories that we, we are connected to in and around our food. I find it fascinating, and maybe you can just shed some light on this for me, is how come, like, initially, let's just use the example that you gave us before with, um, with the Asians and how they um, had their relationship with soy and then they, like, found that they could really, if they had a highly fermented version of it, they could, you know, consume it and it could be okay. But then fast forward to today's day and age, it's like, okay, we can't eat it, so let's just pump edamame. Right, and that's like a it's considered a healthy food. Um, how did first part of that question is how come back when they had less food testing, allergies type sort of stuff, food like less awareness around these perhaps sort of things? Perhaps I maybe awareness is the wrong word to use. They were more in tune of how their food should be processed for them to be in greater balance with their foods. Whereas opposed to in today's, where we've got more information, more science, more ways to measure, mm-hmm. more like tools that we're actually more out of sync with our food. Like now we don't rely on that ancient wisdom. I know what happened. Kellogg's happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, like you look at what happened. So you think back and I just, um, I got to go on a pilgrimage to Israel and I'm looking at their, I'm always fascinated going to all these countries and looking at their food and looking at traditional food and looking at how they ate because this was their medicine. Like, you know, we look at food as pleasure and like, but ultimately food is what keeps us alive and what gives us our nutrients and feeds our gut and builds our immune system. And so you look at all these traditional cultures, they always had some kind of fermented food right? They had a lot of antibiotic, antiviral, antifungal components built into their food. They had anti-inflammatory. So they had ginger, they had garlic, right? They had, so they had fiber, very different stuff that, and and now, so we had food that was really built to keep us healthy. That was our medicine. And then look at this industrial revolution, And all of a sudden, and then I think of, we have a bad combination of the industrial revolution. um, And then we have Susan Powder who came out in the eighties and we had this whole thing that turned out, turned around and they said, fat is what is making us sick and sugar is fine. And I don't know if you, where you were in your life at that point, but this was one of the things that we are still recovering from. So at that time I was at UCLA and everyone was saying, you know, fat makes you fat. You've got to eat low fat as low as possible and don't worry about carbs. You can burn them off. And everybody moved into a high carb, low fat diet and food was even more processed. We started to have like snack wells, these hundred calorie snack packs. People were going into being vegans, vegetarians. And that's when we all started flipping around into getting fat. You can track it. Now you couple that with, so we have all this processed food and a lot of it was some like really bad, like damaged oils, um, genetically engineered gluten. So very inflammatory foods that don't even hardly resemble foods. I mean, if you look at artificial sweeteners, like these are not food. This is a toxin. So then you have all of these things that are actually damaging you. They're making you inflamed. They're making you sick. 
right? I mean, if you look at what's happened over the last 20 to 30 years, you know, at the, at the turn of 1900s, we were eating five pounds of sugar per person a year. Now we're eating 150 pounds of sugar per person a year. At the beginning of the 1900s, there weren't obese people. It was this like, like less than a percent of the population. Now there's more obese people than overweight people. 70% now, I think it's like right up there, obese or overweight, and the obese are more than the overweight. It's like 36%. And diabetes, they keep saying, if we don't slow down by the year 2050, everyone will be diabetic. Like it is unbelievable what has happened because we've gotten so far away from our roots of eating pastured animals, wild animals, wild fish, you know, eating fresh produce that's grown locally, seasonally, rotated, organic. Like we never would have had grapes from Chile and then, you know, apples from, or like all this stuff at the same time of year. No, you didn't have that. You had fruit in the summer. You didn't in the winter, you know, I mean, and there were reasons for these things because in the summer days are longer. We don't sleep as much. If you don't sleep as much, you're more insulin resistant. If you've got more fruit, you're going to gain more weight so that you can then survive in the summer when you're sleeping longer, you're more insulin sensitive. You're not going to eat as much and probably fast a little bit more and use more stored fat for fuel. So it's really, we've just gotten really far away from how our bodies were naturally supposed to eat, feast and famine, seasonal, local, organic, rotate your foods, right? Move a lot, like a lot of activities of daily living. We never would have gone and jogged for hours, but we would have walked around a lot and then picked up some heavy stuff and moved it and maybe sprinted to run away from something. So we're really far away from the way we're supposed to be is the problem. And we're also assaulted with uh, toxins of all sorts between EMFs and chemicals and, um, you know, like iPhones and, and Wi-Fi that we're doing right before bed that's triggering our brain and firing it back up and interrupting our deep sleep. That's a whole nother mess. Mm. So, you know. Was that the question or did I just go off on yeah, a total rant? No, that, was, no, that, was, that, was, that was the question. That was the question. And so, and I think it's very poignant because it's that whole disconnect that we have and your invitation to reconnect to ourselves fundamentally through our own relationship. And yeah, it's very scary right now. You know, they tell us to stay inside. Like, what do we need to do? Go outside, get into the sunshine, step on the grass. Like wake up in the morning, open up the windows, see natural sunlight, go outside, breathe fresh air, get sunlight, get your feet on the grass, hug people, raise your oxytocin, right? You know, move. All these things we're supposed to be doing that when you don't do them, you just get sicker, your immune system gets worse. And now all of a sudden they're like, nope, you can't move, you can't hug, you need to stay inside, can't have the sunlight. I'm like, oh no, you know? I love that. Thank you so much, Shetty. You've given us so many actionable things to take away for me personally, keeping a little bit of a documentary in terms of what, how I'm feeling <laughs> foods and the responses in and around there. And watching out for the seven key culprits um, is, is, yeah, is, is really powerful. But just a reminder for everybody, we're talking about gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, peanuts, sugar, and artificial sweeteners in there as well for good measure. Um, but it's also not demonizing them. It's also just having a look at going like, hey, like, you know, what works, what doesn't work for me. Um, and I think I really enjoyed that just fundamentally, like it's about my own relationship with my foods. It's not a prescribed diet once one shoe fits all. And uh, yeah, just before I uh, 
start wrapping things up, I wanted to ask, is there anything that you wanted to share with the audience while you're here, down here in Australia for us? Yeah, you know, um, all this stuff is awesome. It's, it's great information. I've culled it together for years, and it's absolutely useless if you don't do something with it. Now, I said a whole lot of stuff during this time, and that can be overwhelming. So the big, the big challenge here is to grab one thing I talked about. It might be, hey, I'm going to stop eating three to four hours before bed, or hey, I'm going to let myself get a little hungry and have some water before I need to eat, or I'm going to make sure I have clean protein, healthy fat, and, and non-starchy vegetables with fiber at each meal. Whatever it is, pick one thing, just one thing, and commit to yourself, and ideally get an accountability partner, to start doing that and write that down. Use that journal. And then once you got that one thing going, do the next because, you know, we always want to have this massive change. We have all these big plans and then we get overwhelmed and we don't do anything. But you can make a massive change if you just pick one thing, master it and go on to the next and do it over time. I love that, JJ. Thank you so much. And if you're tuning into this um, on YouTube, you can pump into your comments just below and say, hey, this is the food that I'm committed to. If you want to look for your accountability partner online, we can all hold, hold you accountable in the Spider Evolution community space. Um, thanks, JJ. One last little question I've got for you. When, especially coming from all this, like the space of food, movement, nutrition, and I guess just general, like healthy, uh, well-being, like uh, bodies, um, what does inspired evolution mean to you in terms of what does the future, what does inspired evolution look like to you? You know, what I think it really means is that we each have our own personal journey and because of that, our own personal responsibility to take advantage of what we're given here and like live our life full out the way we want to do it. I love that. Thank you so much, JJ. Thank you so much for sharing that. And for those that want to get in tune, in touch, I know the website is an amazing resource. I personally loved it. Um, is that where people can get That's in the touch? easiest place. Yes. I made it really tricky. JJVirgin.com. <laughs> super super hey JJ, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your presence here today. But you know, you're a, I say this with love, you're a titan in the space. So thank you so much for taking the time and energy you spent into helping so many of us on our journeys of health and well being for so long. And it, like this conversation today is informed by all of that. So I just wanted to thank you for, for all of that. And uh, as always, wishing you the best for what's coming up as well. Thank you, JJ. Thank you. Boom. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, JJ. Do you know, um, do you happen to know Nat Kringudis? Nat Kringudis? No, I don't. She'd be a good podcast for you. She's an Aussie. She's a great health gal. She's a Chinese medicine specialist. Um, she's done a lot of interesting stuff. Look her up, and if you want to hook up, let me know. Sweet. Awesome. I will do that. Yeah. Thank you. She's, she's fab. Fabulous. Perfect. So this episode comes out um, next Monday. So not this Monday. Cool. Send me, send me the info and I can get the team to push it out. Perfect. Where do I send that info? Is that the same place we had the conversation? Put it to, um, did, you, did you send it to me or did you send it to ea at mindsharesummit.com? Uh, I guess my, my assistant does all of that, so I'm not even... Yeah, just have, your, just have them send it to whoever it is, and then they'll make sure that it gets, gets okay. going. Perfect. Cool. Awesome. Thank, thank you. Thank so you. Wonderful. Stay healthy. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Time. Bye. 
Hey guys, if you enjoyed this video, give it a like, leave us a comment. And if you want to stay in tune for new episodes launching every Monday, hit subscribe and I'll see you in the next video. Stay inspired to evolve. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.